Let's turn in our Bibles again to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. My Bible has the day of the Lord. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, <clears throat> neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east, and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man bows down, and the great man humbleth himself, therefore forgive them not. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. And the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty. And upon everyone that is lifted up. And he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up. And upon all the oaks of Bashan. And upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the pleasant pictures, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of man shall be made low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols 
he shall utterly abolish. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? My text will be these first verses, verses 2 through 5. And then shall come to pass in the last days, that's when, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Set before us, Father, uh, beloved, in our passage is the glorious future of Zion. And Zion in the Bible is a name for the church. And what is pictured here ultimately, because it's in the last days, is Christ's kingdom. David was a type of our Lord Jesus. David subdued the nations around them, whether it be the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Philistines or the Canaanites in the land. And they had to pay tribute. They were constrained to obey and to heed Zion. David is the type. Christ Jesus is the antitype. And he is going to subdue all the nations. But here it's going to be so different than in David's time. There they were constrained. They didn't want to. But they had to. By force. But when Christ Jesus subdues the nations... The idea is that he causes them to want to come 
to Jerusalem, want to come to the mountain of the Lord, willingly they come to serve him. And what a comfort that is for most of us here, for most of us are from the Gentiles, aren't we? Many of the Jews turned away from Jesus, away from the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, destroyed by Rome. But on Pentecost, the glad gospel, where at one time it was only one nation that knew the true God, Now all nations are going to know and to serve that God. What a picture of hope and consolation. In the prayer, you probably noticed that I talked about the word of God that came by Isaiah, and you're going to find it throughout this prophecy that there are warnings, there are threatenings to Jerusalem and Judah. But there is also beautiful consolation and comfort given. Now how is it? How is it possible? How is it possible that those that were called Sodom and Gomorrah and harlots to that same group organically, that is, together. They are called Zion. They are called the mountain of the Lord that is exalted. And the answer is because in the church of that day, the church today also, there are the two seeds. There is the seed of the flesh. There's also the seed of the elect. There are the reprobates, the hypocrites, who are warned, who are threatened. There's comfort for God's remnant, for God's saints. We read here that Isaiah saw this word of the Lord. In other words, he's not merely hearing the word of the Lord and bringing it. But again, we have a vision given to him, much like John on the island of Patmos also received a vision of things that are too glorious to think of. Warnings, threatenings, consolation to the remnant. And now this couple verses in chapter 2 serve like Isaiah chapter 1 served. If you will remember, I said the three sermons that we had on Isaiah chapter 1, that whole chapter really is an introduction to the whole book. These four or five verses are now an introduction to chapters 2 through 4 of the prophecy of Isaiah. And when we look at these words, if you know some of the other prophets, there's going to be a lot of similarity. In fact, it's almost word for word what we read in Micah chapter 4. 
Let me read those words. Micah 4, verses 1 through 3, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people will flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord into the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord, the law shall go forth out Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And now you say almost identical words. How is that? Is one of these two guilty of plagiarism? Taking the words of the other? You see that Isaiah and Micah are contemporaries. Isaiah came earlier and God gives him a second prophet to say the same word of the, of the Lord. Now why does the Lord do that? Wasn't one prophet enough? But if you'll remember in the Old Testament, by the testimony of two Shall the word be established? God wants his elect saints to know this sure hope and consolation that, uh, that is theirs. And that's why these beautiful words come. And it shall be in the last days. There are those that like to take this picture that is drawn in Isaiah and Micah and say, see, that's the kingdom of Christ that's going to be established here on the earth. Those Christians are called postmillennialists. They say it is the church's job to create this kingdom for Christ on earth, and when we bring those glorious times in, then Christ will come and he will rule here on earth. <clears throat> of course, that's wrong on several terms, isn't it? It's wrong, first of all, that the kingdom is not established by the church. The, the kingdom was established by God in Christ Jesus. Number two, the kingdom that is spoken of here is not going to be an earthly kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom because Christ said, didn't he, my kingdom is not of this world. Rather, what is pictured here, what Isaiah is able to see goes past many, many years. Oh, yes, he sees God's people coming back from captivity, <clears throat> whether it be those from Babylon or even some from Assyria coming back to Jerusalem. That's the beginnings. But that was a rather miserable kingdom, wasn't it? No king that actually sat on the throne. 
and there was much sin there so that finally they are removed by Rome. What Isaiah sees ahead is what one would see as one travels through the west, perhaps in Colorado, and there you see the mountains arising in the distance. Isaiah is beholding and picturing here the kingdom of Christ. That kingdom of Christ that was established when Christ came to earth and began his earthly ministry. As John the Baptist says, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But now, boys and girls, when you go to the mountains, you see the mountains there in a range, it looks like, okay, there's one big mountain up there. But once you start traveling, you're going to find out that there's a long distance from the first range of mountains to the next range of the mountains to the next range of mountains. You can't see that from afar off. And Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets aren't able to see that either. They see the coming of Christ, Christ's kingdom. That kingdom established by Christ's suffering and death and resurrection But that kingdom to be fully realized when Christ gathers and builds his church throughout the New Testament dispensation and then Christ comes again and then truly there will be this peace established when there will be no more war but rather instruments are used for the good of those around. So we have picture here the age of the Christian church. The time of the Messiah, the period of deliverance and salvation. When there is a breach of sin that between man and God is completely healed. So let's look at that glorious future of Zion, the exaltation of the mountain, first of all. Second of all, the duty of those who go there. And then thirdly, the fruit, peace in the mountain. There's first of all in our vision the symbol of a mountain. We shouldn't be surprised in prophecies. you got all the symbols there in the apocalyptic literature of Daniel and of Revelation, and here now too. A mountain. What does that mountain stand for? Well, it's a symbol of royal might. It's a symbol of strength and dominion. In the book of Revelation, Chapter 17, you have there seven mountains which picture seven different kings. And so we have here a symbol of royal might and strength from the viewpoint of royal authority. There is one coming who's going to rule and he has the right to rule. You have a picture there of a fortress. Israel was a theocracy, which means God rules. That's what theocracy means, boys and girls. And so all of Israel's 
kings were supposed to be a picture of him who really ruled over God's people, and that was God himself. And yes, there were godly kings that were good representatives of God's rule, and of course there was the miserable, many miserable, wicked kings. But it's a picture there of God dwelling in the midst of his people. And that's why it says Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established there. There in Jerusalem was Mount Zion. That is where the royal palace was, where the king would live. But right next to Mount Zion would be Mount Moriah. That's where the temple was built. So you got a double picture here of a kingdom. God in the midst of his people, the covenant in the temple, with his earthly ambassador, the king, ruling there in the palace. And now we read that that mountain which would have been then the kingdom established under David and Solomon. Evil kings, but also good kings, King Hezekiah, King Josiah, bringing reformation during Isaiah's time. That mountain is established. In other words... The nations will never come against it again and defeat it. God rules. By compulsion, in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament church, willingly he rules over his people. They delight in his rule. It's a picture of covenant fellowship, God with his people, God blessing them. The dew of the mountains following down upon the church. God's people are his friends willingly serving him. But second of all, in this vision, not only is there this mountain of the Lord's house, but now notice these words, it will be established in the top of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. There were many different hills around. There's the seven hills of Rome later on. There's Mount Olympus. Those hills or those mountains are the earthly kingdoms that man establishes. And always those hills and those mountains want to exalt themselves and say, we rule. Boys and girls, do you remember a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had? We read of it in Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel wouldn't tell any of his advisors what the dream was. He wanted to test them because he knew they would tell him whatever he wanted to tell him. He says, tell me what the dream is, and then what it means. 
and they couldn't. And so the king threatens to kill them all, all of those advisors, and that word comes to Daniel. He might have even started that. But Daniel then goes to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, O king, there is only one who can interpret that dream, and that is my God. Let me go to that God, that he may give me that dream and the interpretation of it. Now, boys and girls, do you remember what that dream was? A big image, 90 foot tall, gold head, silver shoulders. A body of brass. Oh, when the sun would be shining on that gold and that silver, that brass. How beautiful it must have been. Iron legs. And the feet. Made of iron and clay. Those hills, those mountains, those kingdoms would boast themselves, as even King Nebuchadnezzar does, because... After he has that vision, he goes and he tries to make an image and has the people bowing down to it. But that's not the end, is it? Because if you will remember, there was that little stone cut out without hands and it tumbles down and down and down and down and it hits the feet of clay and iron. And what happens? That big old image, 90 foot tall, comes down crashing and breaks into thousands of pieces. That's not the end of the story. That little stone that comes down, which pictures really the whole promise of the kingdom of God or of Christ throughout the Old Testament. Only God can establish the mountain of God. That stone now grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows until it's a mighty mountain that fills the whole earth. What a vision. All these kingdoms of man, and especially in the last time when the Antichrist comes and establishes his kingdom of peace and prosperity, a wicked kingdom. Those kingdoms will come and they will go because they are the number six, not the number of completion. Those kingdoms will all be destroyed and there will be one kingdom, the kingdom of Christ Jesus. And through the preaching of the gospel, filling the whole earth. Not an earthly domination, which the post-millennialists are looking at, or even the premillennialists look at. No, a spiritual domination. Christ's kingdom will have supreme power, world significance. Christ has established that kingdom. That kingdom is growing. Hopefully it's growing in each one of our hearts. We pray, don't we, thy kingdom come. First of all, in our own hearts, but thy kingdom come as the gospel goes out and Christ gathers his people in.
when? When is Zion going to be exalted? And you will notice here that as we are told in verse 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Or again, verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts. It pictures there the coming of Christ Jesus, his kingdom, and especially the very last days. We're in those days. Remember, I talked about mountains. You look at the mountains, it looks like there they all are, and then there's long time in between. The day of the Lord is the day when Christ came and established his kingdom, is now building and gathering that kingdom, preserving that kingdom, and finally when it's fully realized, when Jesus comes again. The kingdom, exalted in Christ Jesus. How is that happening? We read that all nations will flow unto it. (coughs) Nations did come, didn't they? The nations had to come under King David and Solomon paying tribute. With Solomon, the queen of Sheba comes, doesn't she? Because she's heard of the glory of, king, of Solomon's kingdom and she says, the half has not been told me. Or, you'll remember from catechism that when King Hezekiah was healed from his sickness, there came those from Babylon also. Not in order to serve Israel's God. They came to spy out what was all in this kingdom. What are all the riches there? Oh, King Hezekiah, did you really realize what you were doing, showing off like that? And he's rebuked. No, over against those nations coming, there is with Pentecost, the coming of the nations. As I said earlier, before only one nation knew the one true God, Jehovah, the covenant God. But with the rejection of the Jews and Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out and given to the nations, and the church preaches the gospel, Then the nations come to worship. They envy, they want what is there in the church, in Christ's kingdom. This means that this has already been, on one hand, this has already been fulfilled. The nations are flowing Onto the mountain. And there's something else, boys and girls. There's an irony in this picture, a beauty. The nations are going to come like water flowing up to the mountain of Jehovah. Now, 
How many of you know with gravity, water usually comes down, doesn't it? It flows down in the creeks and in the rivers and the streams and goes out to the oceans. But that's not the vision here. The vision is just the reverse. The nations come as water that flows up to the mountain, which is something that is impossible physically. It's not man-made, but it is an act of God. As only God can cause the the water to go up, as it did in the flood, it is God who is able to bring the nations to the church of Christ Jesus. And what we have here is the very opposite of what took place at Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel, boys and girls? How man wanted to build a temple or how they wanted to build a city that would reach into the heavens proclaiming their glory and God dispersed them. They were disunified with many different languages. And now the many nations that speak many different nations are united in the language of faith. They come together from the ends of the earth into Christ's kingdom, into the mountain of the Lord. What a picture. So already taking place, this exaltation of the mountain of the Lord, the church of Jesus Christ in Christ's first coming, and in these days of the New Testament, but finally realized and fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes again. You see, not everything is yet finished. Things have to take place yet. Many things. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The kingdom is established. It is being built. And it is coming and coming and coming. And it will one day be fulfilled when Christ comes again. So that's the exaltation of the mountain. That's the first point. Number two, the duty of those who come there. Oh, they are eager to come, aren't they? What do we read here? And all nations shall flow unto it, and many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the the house of the God of Jacob, come. They're eager. Isn't this the fulfillment of the prophecy that we have already in Genesis, in the blessings that Jacob gives? We read in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. 
all those earthly kings, faint pictures, some of them miserable pictures, but faint pictures. David, Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. Faint pictures of him whose name is Shiloh. That's Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ comes unto him, shall the gathering of the people be. Through Pentecost, through the Spirit of Christ, the people come. They come through the preaching of the Word, and that's why the church is so important that we hear the preaching of the Word. For God is going to explain to us His way, His will, the way of life. And it's God's work by His Spirit and Word in these folks that they want to come and worship. In other words, worship is not just merely a duty, a drear duty. Oh, we have to go to church again today. It's Sunday. We want to come. Wasn't I glad when they said unto me, let us go up to the house of the Lord? A day in the courts of our Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than any other place. What wonderful glory is pictured here. The people's coming and encouraging one another. They're not content that they have it for themselves, but they want others also to come. Do you see here the missionary nurture of the nature of the church? We're not content that we have the gospel here and that our children have the gospel here. Yes, of course, we're thankful for that. But we want others to know. We want all those that are building all around us also to know this Reformed faith, to know this beautiful gospel. They want, we want them to know this God who is exalted in Christ Jesus and the salvation that he bestows. The church today must be that encouraging church that says to extended family members, not shamed to do it, oh, what are they going to think about our church? No. We say to them, we say to our fellow workers, come with us. Come with us to hear the word of God and to hear about the kingdom of Christ Jesus. Instead of the Tower of Babel when they all fled away, now there's healing of the nations. They flow together to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord, to the church of Jesus Christ. And God will teach them his ways. And when he teaches them his ways, they will walk in his paths. Do you see how closely doctrine and life go together? If we come to church just to hear the doctrine and say, okay, yeah, that, that sounds quite correct. That, that was good. Sorry. That's not the purpose. When we come to hear the truth of God's word, it is so that it affects us 
so that we walk in it. Now I'm jumping way ahead, but that's exactly verse 3 and verse 5, isn't it? Doctrine and life go together. They may not be separated. That is what James is all about. Also genuine faith, genuine faith that shows itself in one's life. That church now being gathered from all nations. Being gathered so that they will be obedient to that God. Nations that once hated him, wanted no use for him, now come to worship him. The Gentiles, when they heard the gospel as the Apostle Paul went from the synagogues then to other places. They wanted to hear it. The Philippian jailer, seeing what took place, hearing the testimony, what shall I do then to be saved? The reason that these nations come, that God's people come from out of every nation is he will teach. Being taught by God, filled with excitement of what we've heard, we encourage one another. We are desirous of the salvation of our fellow human beings around us. God collects for himself a church. And how does he collect for himself that church? He will teach them his way. He teaches them what pleases him. He teaches them what is his will. He teaches them of their sin and their need for a Savior. And then the life that they are called to live in gratitude. And why do these many nations come? Because his word goes forth from his church. And that's why we are taught in our confessions that the preaching of the gospel must be promiscuous. It's sad to hear of the end of our mission work in the Philippines when there is so much work there. And we need to pray for more work that will be shown to us as a denomination that we are eager to share our ministers, even when there's not enough of them at home, to share our ministers to bring the gospel to others also. And what is the result of this promiscuous preaching? Verse 3, he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. And then verse Five, O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. What? What is this? Walk in the light of the Lord? In the Bible, light is a symbol for life, whereas darkness is a symbol of death. Where is this life? That light and that life is in God himself. And God in and of himself gives that life and light. He reveals that light 
there was a catechism book when I was raised for one of the youngest kids, Light Upon My Path. Comes from Psalm 119. Yes, it's the light of the Lord. God revealing that light so that we walk in that light. Notice that's action, isn't it? Walking. Walking by faith. Walking with a direction toward an end. There's progress in our lives. We live our lives more and more according to God's will. O house of Jacob, verse 5, those who were redeemed by Jesus Christ, what a vision! Not only for ourselves, but for our purpose as a church in this dark, sinful world. Until Jesus comes, and Jesus will not come, until all of his elect have been born and have been saved. And just as he took you and me who are vile and sinful and wicked in sin and has turned us around, that is what he continues to do by his word and by his spirit. That is the meaning, that is the significance of these nations flowing up to the house of God. And what is the fruit? What is the fruit? We read there in verse 4. And he will judge among the nations. And he shall rebuke many people. That first of all. He will judge. What does that mean? Well, that word judge really has the idea of rule. He will govern. Where the nations before were not under God's direct control, yet they could only do what God in his power made them do, right? Cyrus. Why did he allow the Hebrews to go back to Jerusalem? Well, it wasn't because he loved the Lord, But he recognized, hey, it makes sense. If I want the people to pay tax, let them go back to their countries, let them be productive, and then I'll get the taxes. But God uses, in his providence, those wicked nations. He rules over them. Rule or govern, God does it of, in his power, in his providence. But he also rules and he governs his church in his grace. So that we don't live like the heathen outside. We don't use their words. We don't think their words. We don't necessarily dress like them. We're a peculiar people. We live antithetically because the Lord, by his word and spirit, is governing us. So we want to do his will. He's governing us inwardly by the influence of his spirit. And he's governing you and me outwardly by the preaching of the word. As we read in Psalm 110, verse 3, thy willing people will assemble. And their one motive, 
Their one motive is nothing else than to be wholly devoted to the Lord and to the house of God. God will judge, that is, he will reprove our innate pride. We cannot be fit disciples to God except we by force irresistibly are turned to him. We are corrected, we are reproved. The wickedness and the perversity of our own flesh is implied there. And when we are reproved as God's people by his word, then we offer ourselves to him without any resistance. We want to be ruled by him. And that is the power, that is the power of his spirit and his word. He convinces his elect people in many different nations who are still afar off to come and know and to love him. And what is the fruit of that kingdom? It is especially the peace that will come, isn't it? For we read, he will judge among the nations, shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In King Hezekiah's time, when Isaiah was bringing this message, those nations would come with their weapons of war, seeking the down destruction of the Jews. Time and time again, God used them as those instruments to chastise them. And when Jesus Christ comes into the world, it is not then either that the peoples take their swords and change them into plows, or their spears into sickles for grain. In this whole range between the mountains of Christ's kingdom, this world is still hated. Hates, I should say, Christ and his people. And they will continue to try to wage war against the church. And thankfully now the nations are still warring against each other, so the church is relatively untouched except in communist nations and Islamic nations and Buddhist and Hindu. But the time's coming. When they're not fighting each other, but their spears and their swords are not yet sickles or plows of peace, because when the nations are not fighting each other under the Antichrist, that is when they're going to go after the church. That is the time of the great tribulation. What Isaiah sees here along with Mike and the message that comes to God's people is when Christ comes again, then the wicked will depart. They will be cast out, no longer a threat against Christ and his church. There will be peace 
wonderful peace. There's peace now already for the church. Peace with God and peace with one another. We heard about that this morning. But that vision finally looks at when Christ comes and there is the fulfillment of this vision. No more warfare. But of the nations of God's elect people gathered together in the new heavens and the new earth and peace reigns there together. We sing songs of Zion. We walk in his ways. We delight to please him. What hope. Threatenings, warnings against apostasy in the church. But for God's elect people who pray, who hate the apostasy that takes place, seek reformation in the church like these prophets and some of the kings. Wonderful peace coming. Serving the Lord. Yes, the house Lord exalted above all. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for the comfort that comes to us as a church. In this world, just a lonely little hut or booth in a cucumber field, seemingly insignificant. But, O Lord, precious to thee in thy sight, cared for by thee, and now these beautiful words of comfort and hope not only, not only always will there be oppression, but one day, perfect peace reigning with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Father, our prayer again comes. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.